0: create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today hello everybody this is marshall poe i'm the editor of the new books network and we have a channel on the network called the new books network seminar and on that channel we put books that we think will be of great interest to everyone across the network and we have another one for you It's called How Charts Lie, Getting Smarter About Visual Information by Alberto Cairo. Alberto talks with Jim Stein, the host of New Books in Mathematics, about, well, how charts lie, and they do so in many different ways. I hope you enjoy the following interview.
1: Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Alberto Cairo, author of How Charts Lie. If Benjamin Disraeli had had the opportunity to read this book, he might have revised his well-known quote to say that there are four kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, statistics, and misleading charts. This book does a masterful job of explaining the lies that charts are capable of making believable and exactly why they are so pernicious. Alberto, welcome to the
2: show. Hi, Jim. Thanks mu- so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Alberto, what motivated you to write this book? Well, um, in the past decade or decade and a half, uh, as a journalist, I am a journalist and a graphic designer, I have observed that the presence of graphs and charts and maps and infographics and diagrams in news media and social media has increased uh, significantly. And I, I think that that's great news just yes, because I'm, I'm a great believer in the power of charts to communicate effectively. But at the same time, I, I also started observing uh, how people uh, systematically misinterpret certain kinds of maps and certain kinds of charts. So I wanted to write a popular science book, very, you know, very, very simple, very elementary, but at the same time, I think useful a, a book. on on how to approach charts more critically and, and and, and to become a better reader of these uh, products of these visual products.
1: You know, before going into the specifics of your book, one of the things I think readers will appreciate about your book is that you use topical and controversial issues to illustrate many of your major points.
2: Well, yes, and, and that's because charts are used in those conversations, right? Charts are, are thrown around when we discuss, for example, immigration or when we discuss um, the unemployment rate or when we discuss important social issues. Again, that, that's the power of visualizations. The power of charts is that they can inform those conversations. They are very powerful at that, but only if they are correctly designed on one hand, and on the other hand, if they are correctly interpreted, if they are correctly read. Um, And that
1: brings us to the importance of being able to read charts, because we see so many. Why is it so important to be able to read charts?
2: Well, it is important, as you say, and as we discussed before, just because their presence in news media and social media and many other and many other fields and environments has increased quite a lot in the past decade. And at the same time, it's also important because one of the things that I, I've I've witnessed myself firsthand is that we tend to approach charts, and I count myself in these we, um, as unconsciously as as if they were illustrations. Uh, some the, 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 We approach them like if they were things that can be understood in the blink of an eye or just with a quick glimpse uh, to them, and the point that I make in the book is that we need to train ourselves not to do that, not to jump to conclusions when we see a graph, not to project onto the chart what we were, what we already want to believe, not to read too much into any chart that we see every day, so we need to become better readers of, of charts in one sense, uh, more attentive readers of graphs. Again, assume, again, assuming that they are not images, they are not pictures, they are visual arguments or arguments made visual. Therefore, in order to understand them, we need to pay attention to them and read them carefully.
1: Yeah, I think it's extremely important. And I also think that um, the ability to read practically anything is declining in our, uh, uh, in our society. I and mean, I think that's regrettable.
2: I, I don't know whether it's a problem with 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 reading skills. I think that it's a problem, and I, I may write a book about this at some point. I think that the problem is attention. It's attention. What we are lacking is not reading skills. What we are lacking is attention. We are undermining our own attention, and it's possible to train and and educate our own attention through the practice of meditation, through mindfulness. It is possible to learn how to become a much more focused reader or viewer of everything that we see around us or everything that happens inside of our own brains, which is also quite important.
1: Alberto, that's an extremely valuable and important point. And I'm a teacher and I've noticed that my present day students seem to have the attention span of fruit flies
2: uh-huh well, yeah, it happens to everybody yeah, i think but 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 it, but it also happens to me it also happens to me right i am a great I mean I'm a constant user of of social media and you know online applications and things like that and i I started noticing my own attention span eroding, therefore, I try to fight against that, I try to consciously make an effort to stop and pay attention and think more carefully, not jump to conclusions, not, not having you know, snapper reactions to everything that I see. Again, me, becoming more mindful of how I, pro- I approach information around this.
1: Great advice for everyone and everything. Anyway, the book opens with several maps depicting the election of 2016, and you point out that they are often misinterpreted by people from all over the political spectrum it certainly shows how either side of an issue can create a deceptive chart
2: mhm yes they do and and the, and the challenge in a case like that so just just for for listeners to understand what we're talking about i would ask listeners to picture in their minds um the results of the 2016 american presidential elections represented at the county level county by county so if you if you picture that map in your mind that mind that map looks like an ocean of red with little splotches or spots of blue here and there. It looks like an ocean of red in there, right? When well, we represent the data at the county level, well, that map per se is not wrong. It is our interpretation of that map that is wrong because that map is often used by, you know, for example, supporters of President Trumps to um, basically convey the idea that he won the election on a landslide or that he has huge popular support. Take a look at the amount of red on this map, right? Forgetting the fact that that map was not originally created to depict or to show popular support. That was not the purpose of that map. The purpose of this map is to show who won where. Red for Republican, blue for Democratic. That's the purpose of that map, and it's a perfectly fine map for that. It's only that we twist it, we repurpose it to use it on, in a, with a, for a completely different purpose, with a completely different purpose to show popular support, and obviously that map is misinterpreted just because it's eighty percent red and twenty percent blue, because Republican vote tends to be more widely distributed all over the country. Right, uh, counties that are sparsely populated tend to be a little bit more Republican. But counties that are densely populated, uh, urban counties, they tend to vote a little bit more democratic. Democratic vote tends to concentrate in areas that are very small in size uh, in comparison to the rest of the territory of the country, but have huge populations. And that's the reason why that map may be misleading. You may project onto it what you want to believe. I won on a landslide. Take a look at this map. I have tons of support. Take a look at this map. Forgetting uh, uh, that uh we are dealing with demographics with 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 people's city uh, population density in this case
1: um Alberto, I think you did a very good job in the last few minutes of describing a chart and one <laughs> and you know and it's very helpful to uh the listeners that you're able to describe it so well. But your book is highly visual, and one of the things that, you know, obviously because it's charts, and one of the things that I appreciated about reading your book is, for the most part, how clear the charts were, how well they illustrated the points that you wanted to make, and I can't commend that too highly to the people who are listening.
2: Well, I appreciate that. Um, I really, really appreciate that. I put a lot of attention to to the design of the charts. I, des- mo- I designed most of them myself, and I must confess that I'm not. I'm, I'm still not entirely happy with them. This happens. I mean, you wrote books, and you know how it how these works. Yeah, right? I'm never a happy book, with my books. <laughs> a, exactly, a book is never finished. Once I received the print copies of the book, I started detecting you know, little mistakes, a printing error here and there, something that I could have designed better, a font size that should have been bigger, a color contrast that should have been better, right? Yeah. Uh, but in any case, <laughs> yes, I, I, again, anyway, I, I I really appreciate the comment. Okay, That's what very- are
1: outliers and how can they be used or excluded to spread erroneous information?
2: Oh, yeah, outliers. So outliers also called extreme values, right? One of the examples that I, that I have in the book is a curve showing the murder rate in the United the past 20 or 30 years. So that curve uh, looks first. Uh, so I'm going to describe it again. So that curve beginning in the 60s, it starts increasing. The murder rate increased during the 60s, the 70s and the 80s. And it was quite high uh, in these decades, uh, up to the 80s or so. Then during the 90s, the curve goes down. The murder rate in the United States declined during the 90s. It stayed stable, flat during the 2000s. And then around the 2010s, particularly beginning in 2014 and 2015, in the curve, we start detecting an uptick the murder rate in the United States starts increasing again. And the, the line has continued increasing up to this point, right? It, the murder rate has increased in the past four or five years. Now, the problem with that chart, the, murder, the national murder rate per 100,000 people, is that it is very easy to describe that chart by saying the United States is becoming a more dangerous country. And we need to be really careful with that because the chart... Uh, the chart Sort of like it's a, it's a simplification of a very complex data set, of a very complex reality. And it's just an average, right? It's like the overall you know, national trend of where the murder rate is going up and down. And it's obscuring the fact that if you dig deeper into the data, you may discover that it is not true that the United States is becoming a much more dangerous country. It is certain places in the United States that are becoming much more dangerous. So dangerous, in fact, that the murder rate has 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 exploded. It's enormous, and these extreme values are the values that explain the up, mo- mostly explain the uptick in the past four or five years in the murder rate. So whenever we look at a distribution of data, right, we always need to. Oh, I would not say always, but we we should try whenever it is possible. To look beyond, you know, for example, measures of central tendency, just such as the average or the median, the arithmetic mean, and so on and so forth. Those measures of central tendency can be really powerful and they are really useful. But if we don't forget what kind of distribution we have behind them, because if the data, you know, if a data set is very, um, I don't know, it diverges or varies a lot, and we have extreme values, very high values, and very low values, that average, or that measure of central tendency, Sometimes a little bit less valuable just because it is not capturing the reality of these extreme, val- extreme values in the, in the distribution. And that's the case of the murder rate in the United States.
1: Um, in the book, you refer to graphicacy, graphical literacy, and the book itself is organized into several chapters, each of them explaining one principle or guideline to become more informed readers of charts. What do we need to pay attention to when we read a graph or a map?
2: <laughs> Tons of different things, right? Again, we need to
1: be... <laughs> like anything else. To,
2: yeah, yeah. We need to be really, really attentive. That is, that's a prerequisite. Stop yourself and look at the chart. Don't just... Um, um, not, not just look at it. Read it. That's the first thing. And things that we, you need to do, that we need to pay attention to, and these will sound like no-brainers to some people, like check the source take a look at the source where does the data come from right we all know that right but we don't check the source and this can be really tricky one of the examples that i have in the book is a chart that a student of mine created a map that a student of mine created about student homelessness in florida county by county and he gathered the data it comes from public sources it comes from the florida Uh, Florida State or something, and the map depicts a very worrying reality. So there are certain counties in Florida in which one out of five students in K-12 education is considered homeless. Well, when these students showed me this this graphic, this map, I was shocked. I said, how is it possible that the homelessness rate in in many of these counties is 20% or more? And he said, he replied to me saying, well, you are not considering what the definition of homelessness is because coming from Spain, probably the image that you have of a a homeless person is someone who lives on the streets. But this is not what a homeless person really is. A homeless person is simply, according to this metric, according to the definition of this metric that is being displayed on the map, a homeless person is someone who doesn't have a permanent home. So if a child needs to switch homes two or three times a year just because perhaps their he uh, his or her parents are divorced and then he leaves three months with his father three months with her mother with his mother and then two or three months with an uncle with an aunt or whatever that child may may be considered homeless already so that's why it's so important to check the source what is being measured that's the first thing then we need to pay attention to scales, right? What I call the framework or the scaffolding of the graphic, the scales, the legends, the colors that are being used to represent the data, what we call the encodings. And I spent a, a whole chapter explaining why, what encodings are. Encodings are the features of the graphic that actually represent the data, right? The properties of objects that change in proportion to the data. For example, in a bar graph, the property that changes is height or length. And this height or length needs to be proportional to the data, right? So we need to pay attention to encodings, make sure, for example, that the scales are not distorted or twisted, you know, in, in, in certain ways. But then, more importantly, most of the book is not about the sort of, so to speak, technical aspects of charts, such as uh, axis encodings and things like that. It's much more about how... We all tend to project, tend to read too much into charts, tend to project our own beliefs onto the charts that we see. The rest of the book is a warning against these sort of like motivated reasoning or confirmation bias and how we can all try to curb it a little bit forcing us to see what the chart is actually showing or what is actually in the chart. One of the mantras that I repeat in the book a couple of times, I believe, is a chart shows only what it shows and nothing else. Everything else that you see in the chart is usually not in the chart. It's in your brain. And you are projecting onto the chart what you want. You know, you start
1: with a table of median incomes for counties in Florida and progress from there to a chart which shows how median income correlates with education. Is this part of what charts do, support arguments that the chart designer wishes to make?
2: Well, yeah, charts are, one of the points that I make in the book is that charts can be easily misinterpreted, and that chart can be misinterpreted. There are a lot of complex realities behind that data that is being correlated with the comparison between education and wealth for example there may be you know huge inequalities within each one of these uh, counties in in florida so charts can be misinterpreted but at the same time charts can enable conversations and this is the main argument in the book a chart is usually not a conversation stopper it's a conversation enabler it's something that we can use to inform better dialogues. And if there is something that we really, indeed, we really need in this country and the other countries that I'm familiar with, like Spain, where I'm from, or Brazil, where I lived for many, many years, what we really need is to have better conversations, in some cases informed by charts, by good charts.
1: You know, I'm thinking that perhaps the same arguments were made by the people who originally wished to put pictures in books.
2: <laughs> it could be, yeah. But I'm, I'm not against that. I'm a huge fan of visual communication. I, I am a great believer in the, in the fact that in many cases the combination of words and visuals is the most powerful way to convey, to convey information accurately. There are certain kinds of stories, certain kinds of insights, certain kinds of information that cannot be understood correctly if they are not pictured or transformed into a graphic.
1: I think that's right. Um, I also think that most of us are familiar with three basic types of charts line charts, bar charts, and pie charts. But there are a lot of different types of charts now. Perhaps you could discuss a few of them.
2: Correct. Yeah, that's right. So, another point that I make in the book is that the grammar of, of visualization, what we call the grammar of graphics, there is actually a book with that title by Leland Wilkinson, The Grammar of Graphics. The Grammar of Visualization allows us to constantly come up with new ways of representing data. So, the bar graph, the line chart, the pie chart, they have been around for centuries, right? I I, I talk about, for example, in the book about William Playfair, uh, a famous polymath from the 18th century, who is widely considered one of the founders of data visualization and of charting and graphing and so on and so forth. And he used pie charts and line graphs, mainly line graphs and a, and a couple of bar graphs in his books. He's one of the first people who did these systematically. But since then, since the 18th century, the vocabulary of charts has expanded significantly. So in the 19th century, for example, we lived through what some scholars call the golden, the first golden age of data visualization, thanks to people such as, for example, um, Sir Francis Galton, who is also very famous in the history, fundamental in the history of statistics because he's a study of um, in, in regression and correlation. Uh, he was one of the first ones to use scatter plots to represent regression and correlation. Or Florence Nightingale, the famous nurse, the famous British nurse, um, who I talk about in the book, by the way, who created graphics and charts uh, for persuasive reasons, to persuade people. Um, um, Also, I'm thinking about uh, Dr. John Snow, um, who is fundamental for the history of um, epidemiology and statistics and also charting, who created wonderful uh, maps um, displaying the fact that, that infectious diseases such as cholera um, they They transmit themselves through contaminated water and through contaminated food at the time people believed that infectious diseases got transmitted by breathing a full a air but snow using maps and the statistical techniques the, the techniques that were available at the time was able to corroborate the idea that it was not that the air that was contaminated it was the water that was contaminated and he used maps for that and then in the twentieth century, we have witnessed an explosion in the vocabulary of visualization. You know, John Tukey, the famous statistician back in the 70s, he created new ways of displaying data. And, and more modernly, I mean, in the past 10 years or so, I'm thinking about, for example, Stephen Few, who also has several books about data visualization, such as um, a, a Show Me the Numbers. It's a wonderful introduction to visualization. He invented a variation of the bar graph called the bullet graph. I'm not going to describe it because it will take too long, but I will encourage listeners to Google it up, bullet graph uh, to to know what I mean and, and again, going back to what I said before, this language is constantly evolving, and it is good that it evolves. It is good that we are coming up with new ways of displaying information. Oh, I
1: always think it's any way you can uh, enable information to be more accurately transmitted is always a good thing. And, mm. you know, I, I, we all, you know, visualization is, is perhaps the most important way that we get information.
2: Particularly, particularly data, right? It's like one of the points that I make in not only How Chats Lie, but also in, in some of my previous books is that um, uh, we, we human beings, our human brain has a very hard time figure, figuring out or extracting patterns and trends from tabular data, data that is presented in spreadsheets, for example. But when we transform these numbers, when we make these numbers more physical in some sense by mapping them onto graphical properties of graphical objects, suddenly those insights, those trends, those patterns that hit behind the numbers become prominent, become conspicuous. You cannot avoid them. You see them. Right. They present themselves in a very persuasive manner. That's the power of visualization.
1: Indeed, they do. Some charts lie by being poorly designed. What are some of the ways that this is done? And is it possible to distinguish a poorly
2: designed chart from one that lies intentionally? Yeah, it is. It is possible, I think. Um, So most of the examples that I have in the book, I think, are not examples of people trying to deceive other people in purpose. They're actually examples of either a graphic that is poorly designed or more often a graphic that is perfectly well designed but is misinterpreted anyway. And that's also a problem, right? So the book is a warning against all these problems. Now in the case of graphics that are distorted, I have examples, for instance, in the in the book of of, of pie charts and bar graphs, etc., that I design that are designed in perspective for example, right? If you add a 3D effect and then you add perspective to the graph, you may be distorting the depiction of the data. You may be, you know, oversizing a particular bar graph and a particular bar in the graph or minimizing the size of another bar in the same graph, therefore distorting the perception of that chart. Or you may be cropping the axis of the chart in a certain way that may lead lead people to interpret the graphic in a wrong way.
1: I liked how you illustrated some of the points in your book by placing correct versions and deceptive versions of charts side by side. I think readers will find this very helpful.
2: I, I hope so. I really hope so. And, and I, one point that I like to make, and I think that I say this explicitly in the book, is that every, every example of critique that I have in the book, every, every mistake that I point out in the book, it's slightly a mistake that I have made myself at some point during my career. So I know where these mistakes come from. I know why they happen, because they happen to me as well. So the book is intended to be a tool to basically save people time, like 10 years of, you know, hitting their heads against a wall and making mistakes constantly. And it's very easy to make these mistakes. That's the bad news. Now, the good news is that if you learn about them beforehand, you may be better prepared to, to avoid them, perhaps.
1: You know, one of the things that this brings up is something that I've always felt. I've always felt that people who are who get things immediately are not always the best teachers of the material because most people don't understand things immediately. And it helps if the teacher has gone through making the same mistakes and can understand where the students are coming from. And what you just pointed out is that you've done basically the same thing in this book. You've described some of the... Problems that you've run into, the misinterpretations, et cetera, that have enabled you to say, oh, yeah, that's what I did. And hopefully present people from doing that
2: um, by reading your book. Yes, I hope that that will happen. Actually, uh, going back to something that you have just said in your in your question, sometimes being too intelligent or being too educated can play against you because you may become overconfident. Um, and you again. You may look at things too quickly and jump to conclusions too quickly because you unconsciously think, "Well, I am super smart. You know, I'm super educated in this thing. I know how to read this chart." And you don't pay enough attention to it. I learned <laughs> not to do that you know, the hard way. Yet, yeah, I mean, I've been I've been designing charts for twenty years already. I'm supposed to be an expert quotation marks in there in data visualization, right? But the more one, of, one, thing, one weird thing that has happened to me throughout the years is that the more I learn about charts, the less I feel I really know about charts or the more I realize that I still need to learn about charts, right? And so the book is also a warning in that sense, a warning in, uh, against being too confident, uh, projecting what you want to believe, being too rushed. It's like, don't think that you are smart. You are not smart. I am not smart and you are not smart either. We are all human beings, we all make mistakes and we need to be become more mindful of, uh, of, of all of these problems, of cognitive biases, for example. In the book I talk about the, uh, I talk about motivated reasoning and the confirmation bias. And one of the points that I make is that it, when we learn about all these biases, when we read books about cognitive psychology and we learn about them, we are much better at at identifying those biases in other people than we are at identifying them in ourselves. And we need to train ourselves to do that as well with our own opinions and with our own assumptions.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: You know, when I was listening to you, I was reminded of Newton's remark about um, when people called attention to how brilliant he'd been. He said, I feel like someone who's just been on the seashore playing with a few pebbles while
2: the great ocean <laughs> of truth lay undiscovered in front of me. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think that was, that was humble brag in, uh, on his part. I think that that's actually true. That's actually true. I think, the, the,
1: you know, Einstein felt that most of the people who are genuinely brilliant realize that, you know, realize what they don't know as much as what they do know.
2: And that is absolutely true. The wisest people um, that I, who I have met throughout my career are usually the ones who are, I would say, more insecure about what they know and what they they are very certain about what they don't know they don't know which is i I believe that that's a source of wisdom yeah i think think you're
1: right anyway getting back to your book
2: what are logarithmic scales
1: and for which types of charts are they useful or deceptive
2: well logarithmic scales are basically you know graphics that don't depict the data in on an arithmetic constant scale they use for example multiples of two multiples of four 10 and so on and so forth. They are often quite useful to display a, a rates of change, right? If a population, for example, doubles every period of time that depicted in a chart, using a log or, 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 or multiplies by ten every period of time displayed on the chart, using a logarithmic scale can be useful for that. The challenge with logarithmic scales though is that they can be They can be tricky. Uh, uh, That's an example of graph you you need, you really need to pay attention to and you really need to be, you know, educated enough and knowledgeable enough to read correctly because otherwise you will read it as if it were an arithmetic scale, constant change when you are actually showing is basically the population growing exponentially, right? And I have a, a couple of, you know, funny examples in the book about these kinds of uh, these types of scales in general when i'm depicting data when i'm designing graphics myself um eh, to be presented to the general public in general I, I tend to avoid logarithmic scales whenever it is possible just because i think and this is based on my own experience that most people have a hard time understanding them sometimes you cannot avoid them as i said there are certain cases in which the logarithmic scale is the right way to display the data but then I think that you need to explain what the graphic is showing carefully, right? Which is another point that I make in the book, right? Whenever we present our, or, or, or we face or we design, let's say, a novel visualization or we depict data in an unusual way, uh, besides showing the data, perhaps we need to explain it verbally, right? There is a wonderful uh, professor um, uh, called Hans Rosling, a uh, uh, Rosling His website is uh, gapminder.org and he has a wonderful book called uh, Factfulness. Anyway, Rosling, uh, if you Google him up, is R-O-S-L-I-E, sorry, I-N-G, Rosling. Um, He was one of the most successful data presenters that I have ever seen. I would encourage people to go to his website, gapminder.org, and see some of his lectures. Just because he didn't just show you the data. in in the form of graphs and maps and charts. He put himself in front of the chart and he became part of the chart. But by pointing out what really matter in the chart, the main data points, and also explaining to his audience how to read the chart. The horizontal axis means something, the vertical axis means something else, and so on and so forth. He was incredible. And I wish that more people uh, would do these more often, particularly scientists, statisticians, data scientists, and so on. Mathematicians spend a little bit more time not just showing data, but also explaining uh, data and the importance of showing that data.
1: You know, earlier in the uh, in the interview, you mentioned that some charts lie because the objects that encode the data. Are twisted or truncated in some way. I know there are lots of examples in your book, but could you describe one, one or two examples that people might be able to recognize?
2: Oh yeah, sure. Um, um so one example, for instance, is is a chart that was shown. I think that it was in Fox News uh, years ago, showing the variation of a federal tax rates. Um, in between President uh, George W. Bush um, and President Obama, I think that the tax rate went up from like I don't know the top tax rate. I don't remember the exact numbers, but like from you know I don't know thirty five percent to forty something percent, right? Which is an increase of a few um, a, a, a percentage points, right? And, and that data that data was represented through a bar graph, right? And therefore, if you represent that through a bar graph, the absolute variation, the increase was significant, perhaps, but it was not enormous it was because it was a few, a few uh, percentage points. The challenge, though, was that the vertical axis, the y-axis of that bar graph was cropped in a way that it greatly exaggerated the, the difference between the tax rate under, tax rate under uh, W. Bush and under Obama, uh, looking, m- making the, the, the data look like if it was multiplying by 20 or something like that, just because the axis was distorted.
1: Yeah, I remember things like that. I've seen that done, uh, the truncation effect I've seen a
2: lot. And that is not I would say that that's even not the most dangerous example or the most misleading example. I mean the problem sometimes is not that the that the value axis is distorted. sometimes it's the x axis that is distorted. Think about, for example, a chart showing, say the unemployment rate right It's very easy to crop the horizontal axis of that chart to basically tell the story that you want to tell if you crop it in between a couple of years. You may prove that the unemployment rate has gone up just because you have selected, yeah. you know, specific months or specific years in which the unemployment grew. But if you if you look, you know, if you look up, if you look outside and take a look at more years in the time series, you may discover that the unemployment rate has actually gone down in the past, you know, seven or eight years or something like that.
1: You know, one of the things that's happening nowadays is obviously there's a predominance of uh, social media and social media is one of the ways that charts are, you know, are easily transmitted. What do you see as the pros and cons of social media?
2: Well, the, the pros of social media, I, 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 I am in social media. I use Twitter uh, on a regular basis. I use it, though, in a very mindful manner. I use it for professional reasons. So I don't spend a lot of time on it. I, I don't spend hours and hours and hours just staring at my, sorry, my Twitter stream, right? I use it just to spread information that I think that is valuable and to follow people who I believe that may be uh, that may bring me valuable uh, information. So it's not a distraction. It is more a, a work tool or a learning tool for me. And and I think that that's the right approach to social media. And it can be really powerful. It's extremely powerful to the cover plenty of great examples of charts and also plenty of bad examples of charts uh, thanks to social media. Now, the bad side of social media, though, is that all these platforms, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and so on and so forth, they are attention seekers, right? They are designed in a way that sort of trick our brains um, and, and become addictive in some sense, right? I don't know if that will be the right term to refer to them. But they can be greatly addictive, right? And you may end up spending lots of time in them, and and pain. And and again, another thing is that they don't encourage attention; they encourage consumption of information, quick consumption of information, rather than attentive consumption of information. They encourage that through their design. Now, what I cannot tell is how to design them better. I'm not an expert in. You know, user experience design or any kinds of these technologies. What I can do is to identify why I believe what I believe is a problem, and just say, you know, this is a problem. Perhaps we may want to look into it and try to come up with better solutions.
1: You know, uh, one of the pernicious things that happened was that the mass murderer Dylan Roof was influenced by misleading charts, and you could maybe discuss that a little.
2: Yes, yes, that example is, is actually one of the most painful um to write about in the in the book so yeah Dylan Roof um before he committed uh, uh the murders that he committed the massacre that he committed he was looking into a white supremacist uh, websites and and many of those websites uh, had charts and and we know that he saw charts now what i cannot charts are were by the way misleading that were twisted in in very misleading ways to push a particular narrative, right? Uh, the challenge, though, is that um, well, the challenge is uh, what I don't claim in the book, though, is that uh, it was just the charts that led him to uh, commit um, uh, these murders. What I say, though, is that the charts may have contributed to strengthen um, an existing opinion. We know that Roof was already a white supremacist and a racist before he consumed more information. The challenge is that. He, he, he sought information that confirmed his own uh, biases, and he found it. He was able to found it, find it, and, and in, in some cases, it was statistical information displayed in the form of charts that unfortunately were uh, greatly distorted and badly designed.
1: Yeah, well, that just brings up one of the things that you said of it is that uh, charts tend to reinforce confirmation bias.
2: And we can all become more mindful of that. We can all, again, learn not to project, learn to read more carefully. Yes. But they can do that if we don't pay attention to them. Yes.
1: What is self-selection? You discuss this in the book.
2: Well, self-selection is basically, you know, all these online polls, for example. I have a couple of casual examples in the book. And I say, you know, suppose, again, when, when discussing the importance of taking a look at the source and what is being measured, right? So if, for example, a, a graphic is displaying the results of a survey or of a poll, um, you know, try to look whether that the, the, the sample uh, that, uh, of that poll was randomly selected, right? If it is not randomly selected, it was probably self-selected. Think about, for instance, an online poll conducted by a left-wing organization. Obviously, the readers of Latin of that left-wing organization are going to be biased in some sense, therefore, the sample in that will be representative of the entirety of the population. The same is true, let's say, if Fox News or any other right-wing publication conducts a poll, the results of that poll will not be representative just because the sample behind those numbers is self-selected. It's people who want to reply to that poll and actively reply to that poll.
1: You have a nice list of principles you use for spreading information. I'm sure the listeners would enjoy hearing about some of the ones you consider most important.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the points that I try to um, make in the book is that nowadays, in some sense, all of us are journalists, right? It's like, what is the role of a journalist, ideally, right? If journalists behave like they are supposed to behave, a journalist is a person who collect some sort of information, process the information, spread that information, always for the benefit of a community, always to serve a community. So the service component is really, really important. Well, think about the third step that I have mentioned, spreading the information. Today, we all do that, right? We all have access to social media platforms and websites and digital technologies. We are all spreaders of information. So one of the things, one of the, the, the points that I make in the book is that I think that we need to become a little bit more responsible how we do these as re- readers of information and spreaders of information. Stop ourselves and not, you know, retweet things mind, you know, mindlessly or post things on Facebook just because they confirm what we want to what we want to believe. So don't play, you know, don't reconfirm our own biases whenever And I also say give a set of like loose, very, you know, I would say vague or informal guidelines on how to create, I would say, a balanced media diet. So how to identify media sources that are more reliable than not, for example. And those are the sources that you should keep in your, in your regular diet, right? So I give some advice on that as well. Again, advice based on my own experience, on how I did that myself.
1: I think you make a valuable point when you say that a chart can be made worse or better depending upon its ability to strike a balance between oversimplifying reality and obscuring it with too much detail.
2: Correct. And this, this circles back to the example of the murder rate, right? So the murder rate curve is an excessive, I would say, simplification of a very complex data set. So it's an oversimplification. It's not wrong per se if you know what lies then you will read that curve correctly. But if you don't, you may misinterpret that as, you know, the United States is becoming a more dangerous country. However, we can we can always we, we can get wrong showing too much data. So imagine, for instance, that instead of showing the national rate, we showed, for instance, I don't know, the rate in every specific, every block in the country, right? That would be overcomplicating the data. You don't need that much detail. You will be obscuring the important patterns in the data by showing too many data points, by showing too much information.
1: What and, are nominal values and real values and what roles do they play in constructing a chart?
2: Well, yeah, that's an eternal discussion, whether you know a graphic should show, let's say, the actual counts or some sort of derived metric or or adjusted metric, right? Think for example, you know, the all these stories that we commonly read in newspapers and magazines, the latest blockbuster just released has the biggest box office ever, right? And then you read the fine print, you read the story and you discover that the box office numbers are not adjusted for inflation. Therefore, it may be that, that, that that blockbuster is certainly a very successful movie, but it can, it may not be the most successful movie ever, right? So adjusting for inflation is an example of a derived statistic of an of an adjusted statistic. Sometimes we need to compare, or we need to assess, let's say, nominal values, actual counts, for example. And sometimes we need to take a look at at, at adjusted values, right? Think about, for example, whether you, if you want to compare, let's say, a a, a crime a cases of crimes, a, uh, let's say Miami, Florida, which is a huge city with uh, Key West, Florida, right? Or think about any other cities in the country, a big one or a, and a small one, right? If you just compare the absolute values, the total number of crimes, the total number of murders, obviously Miami, the big city, is always going to be on top just because the population is bigger, right? And Key West, which is a wonderful town, in the case, obviously, everybody will be familiar with it. It's a much smaller population. It's around 40,000 or 50,000 people. Therefore, the number of crimes will be much lower. So in that that will be one case in which comparing the actual counts may not make the unadjusted numbers may not make a lot of sense. Right? Or, Or at least they will not make sense on their own. You still need to show them just because. There's people, there are people behind each one of those counts, each one of those numbers. But you need, what you need to compare also is the adjusted values, right? The crime rate per 100,000 people, because then the two cities will be comparable eh, eh, to each other. So there are many examples of, of, of this interplay between unadjusted and adjusted values that I described in the book, and I believe are quite, are quite important. We need to pay attention to them.
1: No, I enjoyed your description of Brett Stevens's column on climate change and how charts could be used on this contentious topic to clarify the important points.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a very interesting case because I actually enjoy Stevens's um, uh, writing. So Brett Stevens is a is a conservative writer who writes a, opinion columns for the New York Times, and I think that he's a very he's a very intelligent, well educated writer and he has a you know, good writing style. I enjoy reading, reading him. But the first column that he wrote for the New York Times uh, really puzzled me because he said, you know, all these projections that climate scientists make of where the climate may go, where their temperatures are going to be increasing, you know, sea level rise, etc. All these forecasts are extremely uncertain and therefore perhaps we should pay attention to them a little bit less than we do, right? They're very uncertain and blah, blah, blah. When I read that column, I was completely puzzled because it is true that climate forecasts are extremely uncertain, but that is true of most science, right? Scientists usually don't report a specific data point. They usually report a range of values, a range of uncertainty. We believe that the value that we are interested in is such and such, but the value could be higher or could be lower within this particular range. And climate scientists, as scientists as they are, they do that constantly. We estimate that the temperature in the future is going to be two Celsius degrees higher, but, you know, it could be six degrees higher or it could be one degree higher. Now, the challenge with the differences column, though, is that there is another side of the coin, there is another side of the conversation, which is the following. Now, all the forecasts, All forecasts made by climate scientists in terms of, you know, sea level rise, temperature rise, and so on and so forth, they are extremely uncertain. But what he obscured in his column or what he forgot to mention in his column is that all forecasts that I'm familiar with, all of them point in the same direction, in the direction of higher temperatures, higher sea levels, and so on and so forth, with very few exceptions or no exceptions whatsoever that I'm afraid of. So when so many forecasts point in the same direction, that's a good reason to believe that, you know, climate change change is real. You know, sea level rise is going to be a problem down the road. I mean, I live in Miami. I see sea level rise on a regular basis, right? Miami is getting flooded more often. Uh, uh, during high tides and obviously through when, when there's a storm coming or hurricanes, Miami floods more often than before. And that is an effect of sea level rise, right? So that, may, that problem may worsen in the future. So all forecasts point in that direction. Therefore, we have a good reason to believe that this problem is real. The discussion, though, is what to do about it and, and what are the, the policies or the uh, you know, measures that we can implement and take as a society to address this challenge. But denying the challenge, I think that that's not very wise. The challenge is there and it's going to hit us in the face. It's already doing that, actually.
1: You know, I think that uh, when when you're talking about climate change, of course, I feel that I've seen it in Los Angeles uh, over, you know, oh I've lived, Ooh, yeah. in, Los, I've lived in Los Angeles <laughs> for half a century and it's gotten warmer, it's gotten stickier. And I certainly yeah. feel that a lot of people that I know feel this way. But on the other hand, um, I'm wondering whether or not that it's just local, and uh, I'm not really interpreting the data correctly.
2: Yes. So, yeah, we are we are getting into a, we are getting into a tricky into a tricky because none of yeah, us oh is. Yeah. <laughs> but I have many friends who are. I have you know the University of Miami has a huge school of environmental and climate and marine sciences. So I have friends who work in this area, and what what some of them point out is that it's not that everywhere the globe is becoming warmer. The average is becoming warmer. But what is happening through climate change is that temperatures are becoming in general more extreme. It's like warm places get warmer and some cold places get a little bit colder, right? Some of them get warmer also, but some of them may get colder. That's the reason you may see you know, a lower than average temperatures in the Northeast during the winter in the past few years. But if you come to Florida, Miami is getting warmer. I mean, I was in Miami just a couple of days ago. I'm traveling right now. And the temperature was like 80 or 85 in November. That's very unusual. Very unusual.
1: I'm in Los Angeles. It's November. And the temperature was in the 90s yesterday. There you, go. Well, there. <laughs> so there
2: you happened, are. <laughs> yeah, it's it's happening more often. Again, what we need to do, though, this is an example of how important it is to not just pay attention to specific data points. But to, you know, look up, you know, take take the bird's eye view and take a look at overall patterns like averages year by year and so on and so forth. Have temperatures increased? And the fact is that they have. I mean, on average, temperatures have increased. I mean, Miami is an example of that. Temperatures have increased in the past in the past few decades, little by little. That's true. The The, the temperatures are not increasing at a very rapid pace. Um apparently, right? But an increase of one or one or two degrees can have huge huge effects in, in, in many areas of the world.
1: Yeah, indeed they can. You know, Alberto, it's been a very, very interesting uh interview. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm happy to recommend how charts lie to everyone who's listening, and I hope they read it. I usually end the interview by asking how listeners can get in touch with you. Um how do they, how can they manage to do that? And do you have any projects on which you're working?
2: Sure. Um, so the the good news is that it's very easy to find me. So um, if you just Google my first name and my last name, so it's Alberto and then Cairo, like the city in Egypt, although I'm from Spain, not from Egypt, my last name is Cairo. Um, it's very easy to find me. There is a, There is a famous Alberto Cairo, by the way, who is an Italian doctor, Well, I'm not that guy. I am the other guy, the visuals guy, <laughs> the graphics guy. <laughs> uh, he, the, the other Alberto is the important one. Because he, he's a doctor who did a lot of humanitarian work in, in Afghanistan and he's truly a hero. Um, anyway, humanitarian hero. Anyway, so it's very easy to find me. My, I am quite active on Twitter. My Twitter account is at Alberto Cairo. So, again, it's very easy to find me. I tweet mostly about about numbers. I tweet about science. I tweet about graphs. I tweet about literature sometimes. I, I just tweet about things that I find interesting for, for different reasons, things that I find and I believe that are worth uh, uh, spreading. So, on Twitter, there be, could be one way. Um, I also have a website. I have, I have a web blog. The, um, the web blog is the title of my first book, which is The Functional Art. So the website is thefunctionalart.com. That's my web blog. And I write on a regular basis about, again, graphs, maps, charts, visuals of different kinds, my students' work, and so on and so forth. And then things that I'm working on. Well, I'm always writing something. So I'm I'm already, you know, playing, toying with a, a couple of ideas for, for future future books that may be uh, perhaps more oriented towards um, how to think um, ethically a, about about numbers and how to approach numbers and, and graphs, not just critically. I, I did that in slide but also ethically, the, the ethics of numbers, how to collect them, how to process them, how to display them for the benefit of uh, of a community and so on and so forth. And then many other things. I'm involved in research and you know, teaching, and I love teaching. Teaching is my my passion. Um, I, at the University of Miami, but I also give lectures in many in many different places. I have a public calendar in my blog that people can consult. So again, it's very easy to find me, and people should feel free to to reach out to me at any point. I always reply to emails. Um, it, it takes it usually takes me a little bit long to reply to them just because I receive so many. Um, But I I always try to reply, even if it's just with one line saying, thank you so much for reaching out.
1: Alberto, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting experience.
2: It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye.